Ladies and gentlemen, Marty. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, DJ, it was fun having you take over for uh, me. That means I'm going to take over for Brad. Good luck to us all. So with that, happy Palm Sunday. How many of you have memories as a child of Palm Sunday that they actually in your church brought palms in? Am I the only one? Yeah. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? I enjoyed that. It was particularly impressive because I grew up in Michigan. They would import the palms just to do that. So it was pretty exciting uh, to do that. So I'm going to just get organized here for just a second. Appreciate Rob helping on the technology every week. It's a big, big help. So Palm Sunday. You think, how many in here really, you pretty much know everything there is to know about Palm Sunday, actually. So I really don't have anything to teach you today. <laughs> okay, we'll see how this goes. Hey, I'm happy today to have my son's mother-in-law wave at us, Michelle. Hi, Michelle. She joined us today. She's a, she normally goes to another church, but she came in today just to hear me. <laughs> Glad to have you here today, Michelle, honestly. <laughs> so we're in Palm Sunday today, and uh, we all know all there is to know about Palm Sunday. There's really nothing new we can tell us. Luke 19, if you're in your Bibles, turn to Luke 19, 28 through 41. We all know what's going on here. We all understand that Jesus had just uh, raised Lazarus from the dead. He was preaching everywhere. He was at an apex of popularity. And at that point in time, he was coming down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, and he was riding on a donkey. We know that story. We know they had to go get a donkey, and they had to ask for permission to use it, and they put blankets in the donkey, and in he came, and the people were crying Hosanna. We know all that story. But here's what I'm asking you today. When Jesus came in, he was coming in as their Messiah. He was coming in as the King. He had been preaching what throughout the New Testament? The kingdom of God. Have you ever noticed that? Does that ever trip you up going through the Bible? Jesus didn't teach about the church. He didn't do that. He talked about the kingdom of God. And so the question for us today is, what would have happened if the Israelites um, would have accepted Jesus right then and there as their Messiah? What, what would have happened next? That's always made me curious. So the question is, what happened because they rejected their Messiah. What happened to the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah? Well, we're told that. And what he tells us in Luke um, 19 is that what's going to happen is, I'm reading in Luke 19, if they had only known that what would, what would happen, that this would bring peace, but it's hidden from their eyes. The first thing to know is that when Jesus wrote in, the people did, they raised Hosanna, but they did not accept him as their Messiah. It was hidden from their eyes. Then he tells them this, because they rejected him as their Messiah, the days will come upon you when their enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So while he's riding in, the, the, the Pharisees told him, tell your disciples to cool it. Everybody's singing your hosannas and praises. Don't, don't do, tell them to stop. And Jesus said, if they don't do it, the rocks will cry out. They will say hosanna. Because Jesus 
no longer had a veil. He removed the veil and said, I am coming as your king. And the Jewish nation, as we know, one week later, because this is the beginning of the Holy Week leading up to Easter, we know what happens one week from now, the crucifixion, the trials, because Jesus was re rejected by the Jews. But we don't focus on that passage right there that says because they rejected him, he was going to uh, leave not one stone upon another. Does anybody know what that refers to? The temple. That's the temple. Jesus prophesied earlier, the temple won't have one stone on another. And then he made an allegory saying, in three days I will raise it up. That's a spiritual application of a physical reality. So he talked about that. So the question we have today is, what would have happened for us if the Messiah was accepted by the Jews right at that point in time. What would have happened? Jesus didn't preach about the church. Only at the very end did he tell Peter, I'm going to build my, my church upon you. But that was at the very end, and that was only to Peter. Jesus actually mostly taught the Jews, and so he didn't talk about the church. So the question is, what would happen? So the question I have for us today, and this is the purpose of our study today, is are we in the kingdom of God now or not? Was the kingdom of God really to the Jews, or are we currently in the kingdom of God? I'm just going to do that a little bit. So with that, we have a lot of work to do. We're going to talk about the dispensationalist view. <laughs> yeah, to understand the answer to the question, whether in the kingdom or not, we have to interpret scripture. So we're going to this is manna. We're going to put a little Sunday school into life group today. We're going to take a deeper dive. Dispensationalism is a method to interpret scripture. That's what it is. Primary understanding. It's based on observation, not revelation. The word dispensation is used frequently in the Bible, but the actual study of the Bible is on observation. That is, people who earnestly desire to understand God better focused on the scriptures, trying to understand them. This is not a new thing. It comes from the word economia. Economia literally means house law. The connotation is it's how uh, a house is administered. So administration becomes dispensation. It's a dispensation of administration. Uh, for example, all of us have house rules. How you pay your bills, how you, how you obtain money, all the things that you do, you're administering your household. So dispensation simply means how God administers uh, his church or his people. And so the definition of dispensationalism in the context of Bible interpretation is how man is tested in respect to some specific revelation of the will of God. You know, dispensationalists always quote this verse right here. <laughs> Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And that's what dispensational attempts to do, is rightly divide the word of truth. So to answer the question today about uh, Palm Sunday, we have to rightly divide this word of truth. Now, dispensationalism is really not new. Uh, we know that God is our authority, and so, so dispensationalism describes how man is tested. The idea of dividing God's word is not new. The first century theologian, Justin, Justin Martyr, Arrhenius and Tertullian, those are three theologians from the very first century, right after uh, AD 70, they all described various divisions within the scriptures and the different ways that God um, administered mankind. 
Martyr and Arrhenius saw four divisions, generally from Adam to Abraham, Abraham to Moses, Moses to Christ, and Christ to eternity. So I have a question for you. Are, are you guys all dispensationalists? I'm going to say, yeah, you are. You know how I know you are? How do I know you're a dispensationalist this morning? That, that's actually not too far off. The reason I know you're a dispensationalist is not one of you brought a lamb today for slaughter. Not one of you brought a dove. Not one of you bought a measure of grain. Not one of you bought incense as a poor offering. Not one of you did that. See? My case was made. You're dispensationalist. Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Uh, John Nelson Darby was a uh, a theologian, in eight, born from 1800, he died in 1882. He's the modern creator of dispensationalism. Therefore, we say interpretation methods are observed and not based on revelation. So there's a distinct person who's a theologian who introduced this concept of dispensationalism. Uh, make sure we understand. We're talking about Bible believers who earnestly endeavored to study the scriptures. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. They formulate a structure to help us rightly divide the word of truth. It was John Schofield, however, who really popularized dispensationalism when he published his Schofield Reference Bible in 1902. Do anybody of you have a Schofield Reference Bible? Some do, some, yeah? Okay, good. Um, when I was a boy in fourth grade, my father challenged me to read the whole Bible, and he opened up his Schofield Reference Bible and gave me one just like his. And so in fourth grade, he gave me the Schofield Reference Bible, and uh, I read it in fourth grade and outlined it. I did it again in sixth grade, and I did it again in eighth grade. My father was a pastor. <laughs> I guess all that made me dispensationalist. Um, there is an alternative view. Because dispensationalism, as you can see, was relatively new. True, the first century divided the word in different ways, but it's relatively new. What is the traditional method of understanding the scriptures? That, that plan was called covenant theology. How many of you have heard covenant theology? Is this a new word? Many of you have heard that word? Okay. Covenant theology uh, is another way of interpreting scripture because dispensationalism is not the only way. The traditional... Christian church method was, in fact, covenant theology. Note that both these um, methodologies see covenants as dividers in the scriptures, and yet there are real differences between the two methods, and the differences do lead to different points of view about the nature of the kingdom of God, of the church, and of Israel. Both primary interpretation methods are frameworks for interpreting scripture. Covenant theology is traditionally the main theology uh, amongst Protestants. And really, it uh, became stronger coming out of the Reformation. Reformation in the 1600s, Martin Luther. Uh, for a, a number of years, the Roman church became the primary church, and uh, the study of scripture was dormant for, for many, many years after the second century. Um, really, um, any interpretation will notice that in all the covenants, humanity failed. Every single covenant was marked by failure. And so the covenants uh, are really about redemption. And the covenants tell us about, the, the whole Bible is about redemption. The first part of the Bible is creation. Everything else is redemption. It's about God restoring us back to himself. Uh, notice one difference between covenant theology 
is that they would see, for example, that the Abrahamic covenant was broken by Israel. Well, yeah, all the covenants were broken, but they would say the covenant was broken by Israel, who then lost their covenant. They would say because Israel broke it, they lost their covenant. And in fact, they were kicked out of the promised land. In 722 was the uh, northern kingdom, and in 586 uh, BC, the southern kingdom was kicked out. So it's not without some merit that the covenant theologists would say, well, <laughs> they blew it. <laughs> they're, they're no longer part of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Dispensationalists would agree that Israel failed, but that doesn't mean the eternal covenant of Israel blessing humanity or the land promises are permanently done away with. Uh, we will compare these two frameworks uh, to see the results of their viewpoints. Covenant theologists also differ greatly regarding the law. Dispensationalists agree that grace supersedes the law, no question. But they see the law as a, but uh, they see the law, dispensationalists, as only attached to Israel, uh, with which covenant theologists actually do agree. But dispensationalists might see it revisited in a tribulation period, whereas the covenant theologists say the law is done away with. And there are verses to support both sides, which is why we say this is based on observation, not revelation, and it's complicated, and that's why we're studying it today. You know, they may have a point. Um, the, the covenant theologists may have a point. Remember when Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, he said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's what he said. So we need to go yet a step deeper. <laughs> At this time, um, Megan and Haley, my daughter and my daughter-in-law, I'm going to ask them to hand out another slide. And so this slide, I hope, helps us understand. We're going to show a conceptual view of the covenants, and um, I'm hoping this really helps us understand this. This is what you're being handed out. This is what you're being handed out. This is a structure of covenants, uh, covenants and how they relate to dispensations from a dispensational viewpoint. Now recall that Schofield, he originally found five dispensations. There are a more current versions of this. Again, it's observed, it's based on study, and so Schofield might have seen five dispensations, but what you're gonna see here is the expanded view. Some people have seven dispensations, some people have eight. The eighth, dis the eighth uh, dispensation period is the tribulation. The tribulation. Uh, covenant theologists don't really discuss the tribulation much or the millennium. In fact, we'll go into that a little bit deeper. You'll notice from this handout that you have that there's a, on the lower side, there's, there's covenants. Note that covenants are to a specific people group at a specific point in time. These are, again, the ways that God tested us. It's the reason why you didn't bring a lamb to manna this morning. So um, each dispensation does begin with a covenant, but a new covenant doesn't always end the old one. That's because they could be for a different people group. In particular, the law on Mount Sinai was clearly and distinctly, unarguably, given to the Jews. Uh, if you're a Gentile this morning, you were never under the law, ever. You don't have to keep the law because it never, ever applied to you. Uh, 
let's, let's, um, <laughs> let's look at these for a second and talk about the differences between these, these covenants. The first one is my favorite one. This is the uh, Edenic covenant. Uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to Adam about this. I am. You see, he was a gardener. I'm a gardener. And he was in the garden uh, naked with his wife. And he managed to blow that. I mean, how do you mess this up, honestly? Um, I'm going to talk to Adam about this. Adam, what the world? And so this was the age of innocence. And the age of innocence was there was no sin. Man had not yet been tempted by Satan. They had not yet expressed their free will which means they decided to go against what God taught them. This was the age of innocence. So this is that short period of time in, in Eden. Ah, the good old days. Then we had the fall of man. This was the age of conscience. And as Satan said it was partially true, when they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they in fact got this thing called the conscience. And that is, they knew for the first time, oh my gosh, we're naked. And they understood, we've sinned. What did they understand? Oh my goodness, we have broken fellowship with God. What did they do in response to the fact that they broke fellowship with God? They hid themselves. They hid themselves. So they hid themselves because their conscience told them, we no longer have fellowship with God. And so that happened. Uh, and then there was a new covenant. That's the Adamic covenant that outlined this. The Adamic covenant, this is the one that says, ladies, uh, we're all going to live on a cursed earth, and your result from that is pain and travails in childbirth. Uh, I've been told that's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it is hard. I had to give like a 12-hour back rub. It was unbelievable how hard that was for me. <laughs> Glad to have you, Megan. Uh, so women were cursed in childbirth. Men were cursed with what? That Garden of Eden that so easily yielded everything you need? No more. The earth is cursed. This is one of the fundamental understandings that Christians have over the non-world people. Everybody asks the questions, how could a good God allow terrible things to happen? Why are there Christians in this very class who have cancer? How come we have people dying whom we love very much? Why is that the case? Why do we have physical ailments? Why are all these things happening to us? Well, it's because you're on a cursed earth. None of that happened in Eden. You're on a cursed earth. And so men are gonna work hard for their daily bread. Women are gonna have travail and childbirth. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> Uh, women, it says in Genesis 3.16 that you're going to be beholden to your husbands in a different way. So you have a different relationship with men today than you had as originally created in Eden. These are all results of the curse. These are the new rules under which you live today. We've been living with that covenant from that day forward until now. It still applies. New covenants didn't make that covenant go away. You're still living on a cursed earth. Finally, uh, people were so bad under that cursed earth, God said, enough enough. I'm going to flood this whole earth out. And then he gave the Noahic covenant after the flood saying to, to um, Noah, no more floods. That was the last one. Why was it important to say that? The reason is before the flood it didn't rain. There was, it was a firmament above. Everything was watered by dew. There was no rain. So he had to put the rainbow in the sky to say, okay, it's going to rain, but we're not going to flood you out like we did last time. I'm not going to curse the earth that way. The next time the earth is going to be judged, it's going to be fire. Fire. Okay, so now we have creation, fall, flood. Let's illustrate these different dispensations for you. 
What was uh, the result? Let's take murder as an example. What was the punishment for murder in the age of, uh, the, of innocence? There wasn't any murder. <laughs> it was perfect. There was no murder. So there was no murder in the age of innocence, so there was no punishment. What was the punishment for murder in the age of conscience? Remember Cain slew Abel. What did God say? Cain, you've got to leave to another land far away from your people. What else did he say? No one touch a hair on the head of Cain. You can't do anything to him. Do not touch him. Wait a minute. The Bible said there's no capital punishment? Yeah, under that dispensation. What happened uh, with the Noahic Covenant? A new thing was installed, a new dispensation, a new economy was installed, which says human governance. Before that point in time, man did not rule man. Men were all directly responsible to God, to their own conscience, their own behavior. It was so bad, God said, no more. We have human governance. What happens after the flood if you murder somebody? I would say, don't do it. <laughs> it's capital punishment. That was the institution of capital punishment. So think about that. There was no murder in a sense. It was not a capital crime, a penalty of death in the age of the conscience, and it was a capital crime. So these are just ways to illustrate differences in the way that God dealt with mankind. As you go forward, uh, you have promise. That was God working out his redemption process to Abraham, saying to Abraham, I'm going to give you a covenant. Your people will be the father of many nations. I'm going to bless all people through you. There's a land attached to this, and you are going to occupy that land. And so that was the promise. And then the people of Israel were, were formulated through the eons of time, and then on Mount Sinai, they came out of uh, the Exodus, then the law was instituted. What was the purpose of the law? It's to show us how rotten we really are. It was a, a, a measuring stick. That's why we call it the canon of scripture. Canon literally means measuring stick. There's a measuring stick called the law. You were never under it, but you can look at it and go, whoo, <laughs> uh, I couldn't have done it either. You know, sometimes we look at Israel and we think, oh my gosh, they had a pillar of fire by day or, and a cloud, a cloud by day, fire by night. How could they have possibly done all the stupid stuff they did? You'd have done the same. <laughs> You'd have done the same. So we're all fallen people, and the law was there for us to understand how rotten we really are. Finally, we have the age of grace, which we're in today. The New Testament, Old Testament divide is where? The temple curtain was ripped in two. When the temple curtain was ripped in two, we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Why? Because now, through Christ the Savior, who died on the cross, you have direct access to the Holy of Holies, to God himself. No longer do you go through a priesthood. That's the division of the Old and New Testament. That's what you see there with the cross. And then there's a time period uh, after the resurrection that the people were not sure what to do. And then we got Paul. And Paul brought the church forward. That's the age of grace. You're in the age of grace today. This is the church age. Well, the point, though, is these dispensations is for us to understand how to interpret these scriptures. So uh, let's go to understanding how this works. Let's compare covenant theology to dispensations to see which we really believe. Uh, dispensationalism exists, insists on literal interpretation of the Bible, unless it's clearly and obviously an allegory. There are many things that are clearly, but covenant theologists would say, no, the Old Testament is pretty allegorical. It's not really all that literal. Much of their framework of the covenant theology does not actually work literally. Dispensationalists see prophecy literally. 
And in fact, most of it did happen literally. Uh, that which didn't is therefore still to come. So many of the prophecies in the Old Testament, we can look and say, that happened on that day just like God said so. And as we know from Palm Sunday, uh, we know from Zechariah 9.9, passage in Isaiah, he told us he was going to come in on a donkey. He said it was going to happen, and it literally happened. Therefore, if it didn't happen, it's still to come. That makes a huge difference regarding Israel, a huge difference. Is Israel coming back to their land or not? All of it. They were only in portions of it. They have never occupied all of it, and that was through their disobedience. You know, uh, you can understand how popular dispensationalism came after 1948. Can you imagine the, the feelings of the covenant theology people when Israel was formed in 1948? For hundreds of years, Israel didn't exist. The people were scattered. Covenant theologists would think, uh-huh, done away with. <laughs> Our time horizons are too short. And so when Israel was formed in 1948, dispensationalists, it rose, and that's why we are so dispensationalistic today, largely from that event. Um, so the question is, are they coming back to their land, or are they not? Dispensationalists, being literal, place great emphasis on the actual text and its meaning at the point in time. Therefore, Pastor Roger and Brad, they're careful to set the context of any given passage. It's very important. What would be the meaning of the actual text at the time? We all understand that. Uh, if you said something was cool 200 years ago, it means it lacks heat, lacks temperature. If you say that now, the context of your words might mean it's an affirmation of some, something that they like. Two completely wildly different things, but the context and the time sets the meanings of the words. And so dispensationalists will say, and Roger is careful to do this, here's the context, here's the words, in their culture, in their understanding of words, here's what it meant at the time. Uh, Deductive reasoning is a process by which a conclusion is based on multiple premises generally believed true. So you're going to stand on truth. It's considered a top-down methodology. Versus inductive reasoning, it's a logical process also formed on multiple premises which are believed true and they're combined to make a conclusion. This is often described as bottom-up, inductive versus deductive reasoning. Um, the differences uh, between the the two are found in their main contextual comparisons. Another difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology is the progressive nature of revelation. We all understand, and both methods do, both methods agree the word was revealed over hundreds of years. Dispensationalists believe the word is strongly progressive, so the order matters. Covenant theologists see the word as more of a whole. And so, in fact, they kind of see the Old Testament as being done away with. And dispensationalists say, well, no, <laughs> you can't really say that. So there, there's legitimate differences. Um, dispensationalists will go with it being the order matters. Covenant theology sees the word as a whole, so therefore the difference is that dispensationalists see time as flowing in one direction only. They would criticize covenant theology for saying, you can't go back and reinterpret the Old Testament in light of what you now know with more current revelation in the New Testament. You can't go back. You have to understand what was done at the time. Um, covenant theology tends to see earlier revelation in light of later revelation. Dispensationalists believe that while the word has expanded revelation, earlier revelation 
was sufficient at the time of the revelation. That is, God's people always had enough information to be pointed to him. God's people always had sufficient understanding of the dispensation, the economy of what was going on to be uh, brought to God, because that's the whole purpose of all the covenants, regardless of the fact that they all, covered, they all failed completely. Uh, therefore, this whole notion of Israel and the church, they're not so much method issues as they are results of the methods that are applied to understanding the scriptures. Is this fun or what? I'm having fun. Let's keep on going. There are arguments for and against dispensationalism. Um, like most viewpoints, there are pros and cons. The whole point of these frameworks is to understand the scriptures. Again, you know, if God wasn't infinite and he's revealing himself to finite man, he's revealing himself to fallen man, cursed man, there probably wouldn't be multiple viewpoints. But the fact that there's multiple viewpoints is just evidence that it's an infinite God trying to, trying to ex express himself to finite people. And we know that in Jesus' teaching himself, he frequently would use uh, storytelling and examples. And these are things that people could understand. Um, if the point of prophecy is to reveal God, which is one of his points, authenticate his word, another point, and his prophets, so the prophets themselves had to be authenticated, and they lead to our redemption, then it makes sense that prophecy needs to be literal. On the other hand, many prophecies have literal, contemporary, um, focused elements, but have a general, future, spiritual element. These are often seen as presented at the end of a more historical prophecy context. Let's look at that for a second. Many prophecies say something that's going to happen like this. Uh, there's going to be a Palm Sunday. Jesus is going to ride in a donkey. People are going to put down palms and cloaks. That was way back in Zechariah hundreds and hundreds of years beforehand, very literal. However, many prophecies have both a current contemporary uh, understanding of a future event. They would say things like um, the, the Amalekites, uh, the, uh, Syria, excuse me, Assyria is gonna come down and they're gonna overtake the Northern Kingdom and it's gonna be destroyed. And it would talk like that and Joel would say that and then he would say, and there's a coming great day of the Lord. So it's very typical to have a viewpoint near and far in any prophecy where God would say, this is what's going to happen now, authenticating himself, authenticating his word, authenticating his prophet, but then he would take it to a future use. Dispensationalists would see the future use, and too often covenant theologists might say, well, uh, that thing's been fulfilled. Put that one down. It's, it's done. Whereas a dispensational view would say, no, not all of that has been fulfilled. He talked about some things that are future placed. That's very common in the tribulation and the millennium, which are talked about a lot in the Old Testament. And, um, but if you disregard the Old Testament thinking it's been fulfilled completely in the New Testament, <laughs> what tribulation, what, what, what millennium? So uh, dispensationalism leads to an understanding that Israel is special and is before and after the church. Now, there's problems. But Christ clearly created the church, and he is the head of the church. And furthermore, the church, that's us, we're the bride of Christ. We became the bride of Christ. So it's not so clear, Israel or not Israel, church and Israel are the same. Israel is no more, and the church took it over for that. That's not, that's not perfectly clear. You know, another difference. Early covenant theologians paid very little attention to the book of Revelation. Yeah, which is kind of funny because they didn't know what to do with it. 
That's strange because it's highly allegorical. Revelation actually is highly allegorical, which sounds like it'd be the dispensationalists who would trip over it. But they didn't because they were tying it to Old Testament prophecies. So dispensationalism uh, was really, um, it really became extremely popular after 1948. And after 1948 and the rise of the dispensationalist understanding of the scriptures, guess what happened then? An explosion of study of the book of Revelation. Hey, let's look at that crazy book that nobody can really understand. What in the world does it actually mean? And in fact, Brad spent about nine months telling us what it actually meant. And he has to do that through a dispensational view. In fact, the rise of um, the dispensational movement gave us some popular culture impacts. How many of you remember the, uh, the movies, the books, uh, Left Behind? That's a strong dispensationalist viewpoint, and that popularized study of the book of Revelation. Before that, it's like, how far away from Revelation can I stand? <laughs> how can I not talk about Revelation in my church, in my Sunday school? And it was the dispensationalist said, no, no, Revelation, oh boy, that's extremely important. And I agree, it is. Wow. There's more. There's more. You thought we were almost done. <laughs> you know, there's another element. It's an important, another dimension to interpretation. This is less about a framework like dispensational or covenant theology. It's more about the nature of salvation itself. It's about the condition of man and the work of the Holy Spirit and the nature of man. These are also based on observation, not revelation. So this is based on observation, meaning believers who seek earnestly to understand the scriptures are trying to describe what they understand about God. So you have two camps here. How many of you have heard the word Calvinism? Not an unfamiliar word. How many of you have heard the word Arminianism? Many of you have. Okay, good. So the definitions. Um, Arminianism is a set of doctrines that concludes that unaided by the Holy Spirit, no person is able to respond to God's will. Yet salvation is conditioned on a person's willingness to freely place their faith in Christ. So what that means is the offer by grace, uh, of grace by the Holy Spirit, is resistible. Calvinism takes it a little bit different view. They view it as a set of doctrines that concludes that God alone is responsible for every aspect of salvation from beginning to end, election to glory, and man contributes nothing to it. What they say is the offer by grace of the Holy Spirit is in fact irresistible. Now, these are both based on observation. They came therefore from man. By the way, I, I view all these as our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that. And so our Arminianism came from Jacob Arminimus, and he was a theologian. Calvinism came from John Calvin. Like covenant theology and dispensationalism, it's not like one is clearly heresy and one is truth. You can't say that's completely wrong and this one's completely right. You really can't say that. Okay, arguments for and against Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, the Great Awakening does everybody familiar with the Great Awakening? In early America, uh, the Great Awakening was the rise of the evangelists who brought about a tremendous spiritual growth in the United States of America. And to this day, when we say we're a Christian nation, it's not just the Founding Fathers' documents. It's really 
from our historical Great Awakening. When people will tell you that we're not a Christian nation, they need to read more of their history. They need to understand more about the Great Awakening. Strangely, the Great Awakening was largely the work of Calvinists. Now, you would almost think, well, that doesn't make any sense, because if you're predestinated and you're, um, you don't really need to reach out, those of you who are going to get saved are going to get saved. So you would think, and this is sometimes a criticism of Calvinism, that they wouldn't be evangelical. They wouldn't reach out to bring others to Christ. Wrong. It was the Calvinists who led the Great Awakening. So the early preachers of that movement were actually Calvinists. In 1793, a Baptist historian, there was such a thing, John Asplin, said there were 1,032 Baptist churches in the known America. And 956 of those churches were Calvinists. So Baptist churches back then, we're using Baptist churches because we understand their doctrine a little bit better. The Baptist churches were strongly Calvinistic. Today, the Baptist churches lean almost exclusively to Arminianism. Arminianism. So, uh, that's quite a bit of difference. The main difference between these two camps is election and predestination. You've all heard of election and predestination? You're all great students, thank you. So you understand that. Calvinism argues that if you're saved, it's because God predestinated you and you could hardly resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, Arminianism says it a little differently. They say, well, they're going to put more emphasis on the fact that we are created in the image of God and they're going to have more discussion about the free will of man. The free will of man. Man can and does resist the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Carolyn. I can't help but notice in our class, we pray week in and week out for our unsaved brothers and sisters, physically brothers and sisters. We pray for our friends. We pray for our loved ones to get saved. We do that every week, as we should. I'm not saying a, a strong form of Calvinism would say if they could have gotten saved, it would be irresistible for them. They are predestinated. They would get saved. Hmm. Arminianism would say, well, actually, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. And that's why we pray week after week for our loved ones to come to him. Do I believe that can be effectual? I absolutely believe that can be effectual. But how come they're not already saved? I've been praying for them. Are they not predestinated? Are they not the elect? Is this a difficult question? I think it's a difficult question. Well, here's the thing. Predestination and free will both exist. Both are true. Arminianism would say that those who God foreknew, he did predestinate. Oh, and they have a verse for that. In other words, the fact that God is omniscient means of course he knows who would accept him. That's the very definition of the word omniscient. He knows everything. And so he knows that you're going to accept him and therefore you're predestinated. Calvinism argues that if you're saved, it's because God predestinated you and you could hardly resist the Spirit. So they both exist. But remember that Arminianism would say that while God is omniscient and he might have predestinated you because he foreknew, he also said he is not willing that any should perish. Calvinists would agree with that, but they would observe that it is the Holy Spirit and his work alone that brings salvation. You have nothing to do with that. 
And so you can see truth in both sides. I agree, I had nothing to do with my salvation, but I did accept it. However, when I look inside myself, I have a hard time believing I was not predestinated to be saved. I didn't have any ability to resist the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not saying I've never grieved the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is that I've never doubted my salvation. And um, I, I can understand this idea of predestination. I don't know how a Marty Buck would exist without God. I was saved when I was five years old. And so I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint. And yet, certainly the free will of man. I'm going to do something I uh, have not read in any analysis. I've not seen this in any theological text. So if I'm completely wrong, forgive me. I think I can do this, though. I'm going to juxtapose those two different theological vectors against each other. And the question is, is how do dispensationalists and covenant theologists relate to this whole notion of Calvinism, Arminianism? I'm doing this by way of illustration so that you can understand this concept. Um, there are different things, but I think it's useful to see the different viewpoints and how they resulted in different denominations. Now, most people say, I don't like denominations. And okay, it'd be great if there was none, but these are honest theologians looking at the same exact scriptures. You're gonna see them in heaven, you're gonna see them, they're in Christ, I don't doubt that. And so there are honest differences. And the whole point of this is to draw closer to God. So I'm not trying to show every possible denomination, that would take too long, it would also take more vectors on my little graph here. But Calvinists would agree that um, this is how it looks. In general, today, Southern Baptist churches would be up in this upper right quadrant. That is, we're a step towards Arminianism and we're a step towards dispensationalism. Conversely, Presbyterians, who you're gonna see in heaven, uh, they are a step towards covenant theology and they're gonna be a step towards Calvinism. So they're known for Calvinism and we're known not so much for Calvinism. Um, so there's different ones. And I'm not saying these are the only differences between Baptists and Presbyterians, by the way. There are many, many others. For example, uh, baptism and governance. We're an independent church. We're not ruled by a, a body of other churches to the extent that we're in the Southern Baptists. That's for pooling of resources and fellowship, but they don't actually have any governance rules over us. Presbyterians are a presbytery, and they have a governing body that actually can make rules on their behalf. So there's some differences. So these are not the only differences, but again, this is just to point out how these relate. Remember, I am saying that everything we discuss today is by observation, by believers earnestly trying to rightly divide the Word of God. That's the whole point. I would consider any of these, in almost any degree, to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. We aren't trying to divide sheep from goats. That is, the saved from the unsaved. We're trying to understand the scriptures in order to grow in Christ. You think there can't be more. Of course there's more. <laughs> there are some interesting trends happening today. By today I mean like the last 40, 50 years and it's even accelerating a little bit right now. There are interesting trends in these theological viewpoints. They are converging. These trends are converging around the middle. Um, strong forms in all these positions are weakening and convergence is happening. Since each position, as we've just seen, has strengths and weaknesses, this is not surprising and it's probably good. I see myself as part of this trend. From being a super strong dispensationalist, not so sure about the Calvinist or Arministic part, 
um, but I was a strong dispensationalist, I have to say, well, there are some scriptures that look a lot like the covenant theology position. So I see myself as part of this trend. If you looked on the Valley Baptist website, you'll notice the church lays out what is essentially a soft dispensational view, meaning that we are premillennial without saying we are pre-tribulational. Likewise, when Brad taught Revelation, he didn't say the rapture definitely happened before the tribulation. 25 years ago, most churches would have said that. So they're converging. But covenant theologians, they still might be amillennial. There isn't a millennium. I don't know where they got that from. Uh, so we still are on the side of dispensationalism. There is a millennium. It's talked about constantly in the Old Testament. So it's still there. Um, however, Baptists are also rediscovering their Calvinistic roots. We've gone largely away from that because of the rise of dispensationalism. We also somehow simultaneously went away from Calvinism. Um, I think there's a little bit of Calvinistic in me. Uh, as I said, I don't doubt my election, and I accept the predestination as being God knows everything. Why wouldn't he know that? He knows how many hairs are not on, on Jeff's head. I mean, he knows everything. <laughs> Cheap shot. I apologize for that. Okay. Well, this is a lot of fun on Palm Sunday. Where does all this take us? Other than it was fun to do, what does really then Palm Sunday mean? Uh, John 18:36 tells us about Jesus' trial. In Jesus' trial, Jesus confirmed that his kingdom was not of this world. That's why the Jewish people wanted it of the world. They thought he was coming in as their king, their savior from what? Their sins? No, Rome. Rome. So Jesus at his trial said, I'm not, of the, I'm not of the world. This flies in the face of what Gabriel told Mary in Luke 1, 31, 33. Here's what Mary was told. And the Lord God will give to him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. If you're a dispensationalist and you interpret literally, it sounds like the kingdom really is of the Jews. How else would Mary have taken that? Mary was told that. Why would she not think that? That there's going to be, a, my son's going to be a king. He's going to be ruling over the house of Jacob. That's the Jews. And it's forever. There'll be no end. That's problematic. If you're a strong form dispensationalist, you scratch your head right now. In fact, Jesus did establish the church. Galatians 3, 27, 29 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That sounds exactly like the church replaces the role of the Jews, and the Gentiles are now spiritually heirs with the Jews. That sounds exactly like the church is replacing the role of Israel. Hmm. Jesus preached almost exclusively about the kingdom, and he talked to almost exclusively the Jews. But here's what Luke 16, 16 says. The law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached. It sounds a lot like something's different. Jesus also said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed 
throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That sounds exactly like the role of the church. That is our job, that is our task, to take it to all nations, and then the end will come. But here's what we know. Let's understand what we know. The kingdom is of and is in heaven. Jesus clearly said that uh, to his, in his trial. Christ did, in fact, create the church. And we Gentiles, that's almost all of us, are included in it. You are the bride of Christ. We are partakers in the kingdom. I'm going to conclude with a Bible verse that doesn't clarify this, but it brings it all together. Naturally, it would be in Revelation. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, tells us, and I quote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea is no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I saw a loud voice, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, there'll be no more crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's what Palm Sunday means. It's talking about the kingdom. And so I'm going to say we are part of the kingdom. Let's look at some applications this morning before we finish. These differences are an interpretation, the result of believers who were earnestly trying to observe the scriptures, and so they wanted to understand the world. That's what these arguments are all about. Don't misunderstand their intentions. Because of that, we have absolutely no right for spiritual pride. When we're studying these things, we can't then go to our fellow brothers and argue, here's what the Bible says, here's what it should be, I'm going to twist your arm that you should believe this, you should think that. That's not what this is about. Spiritual pride is completely unwarranted, and we should have none, period, full stop. Diligent study and interpretation of the word is about growing closer to God. It's not about dividing believers. That's not what we're trying to do here this morning. If you don't believe exactly like I said just now, then, um, well, you know, you're lesser. It is not about that at all. It's really about growing closer to God, not dividing us. And finally, no matter how the words are interpreted, the word is truth. It's the only true method of redemption is in Christ, and today Christ is glorified in his church. So the takeaway on this Palm Sunday is that you are part of the church, that there is a future for us by God, and that you are currently in his kingdom. Uh, salvation is now. Eternity begins now if you're a brother and sister in Christ. And so no matter how interpreted. I did a little tip of my hand to my, my father who struggled with all this his whole life. Uh, he was an honest theologian. And that church you see up on there, that's the church I grew up in, in a little town in Michigan. So with that, God bless you. Have a blessed Holy Week as we look forward to Easter.